over in Daniel chapter 4, moving through this series uh, in the book of Daniel this summer. Words will be on the screen in the Christian Standard Bible. Um, I wanted to start, as we talk about pride and humility today, uh, you've heard the, 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 the saying that pride goeth uh, before the falleth, and I've experienced that literally, although Dwight Schrute would disagree, he would say false. Summer comes before the fall, so that's, you know, you can recalibrate. But, so the year was 2019, uh, just a week before uh, Jill and I were to get married, and I had gotten my first of two hip replacements, and so I had started running, uh, I had started jogging, all right, uh, in fact, I would maybe call it walking with vigor, right? But I was, either way, first time since high school, I was able to jog, and so I started kind of feeling myself. I'm like, look at me, my legs all working properly, right? So I'm jogging, and I'm getting a little bit faster, a little bit faster. The wind's starting to blow through my hair, and I'm like, ooh, watch me, watch me. And I start going faster and faster, and I'm like, look at how fast I can run. And I start high-stepping, and I look down to admire this Greek god-like body that's just sprinting down the subdivision. And I'm not kidding. At the moment that I look down to check myself out, this rock out of nowhere grabs my ankle and throws me to the ground, and I just eat it, headphones flying, phone is flying, my hand lands, I just gnarl up my left hand, that in about a week is supposed to have a wedding ring placed on it, so at the altar, Jill just kind of hangs a wedding ring on this slab of flesh that I have left dangling there, and I, as I, what I found was this literal, the words of St. Paul rang true in my mind, whoever thinks he stands or jogs or walks vigorously, must be careful not to fall. The faster and faster, I, more and more, what I found myself doing was face planting in the dirt. And King Nebuchadnezzar, he's going to learn a similar lesson this morning in Daniel chapter 4. Two things I want to see from this chapter this morning. The first one is that God cuts the cocky down to size. God cuts the cocky down to size. So if this is a movie, uh, I would picture this opening scene with Nebuchadnezzar, kind of that, he's curled up with some cocoa and writing in his diary. And he says, dear diary, or, or in this case, dear all peoples of the earth. He says, um, Daniel 4, King Nebuchadnezzar, to every people, nation, and language who live on the whole earth. And he says, may your prosperity increase. I am pleased to tell you about the miracles and wonders the Most High God has done for me. How great are his miracles and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Now, wait a second. Like, what has happened here? This was the same guy in the first three chapters. He has ravaged Israel, taking them captive into Babylon. He's scooping up other nations of the earth like he's picking flowers. He's made this giant statue for every nation to bow to and acknowledge that, that Babylon is the world-dominating empire. Or if they don't bow, they will burn in a bonfire. And now he's writing thank you notes to the nations and telling them, may your prosperity increase. Like, God is awesome. Like, all of a sudden, he's writing them notes, and I imagine his eyes are dotted with hearts. Like, why is he just all of a sudden loving the earth? This would be like if, if Hitler had all of a sudden started writing love notes to the Jewish people and minorities and going, hey, I hope you guys are having a great summer, right? We're all such equals, right? Like, how did all, where did this come from? And he wants to back up then in verse 4, and he says, let me tell you a story. As I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house, he's going to tell us a story of how he was transformed from this flaming narcissist to a worshiper of God and a lover of people. And I, and I hope this is a story this morning that we can have ears to hear, because each of us, in our own ways, need a similar heart transformation as Nebuchadnezzar experiences in Daniel 
four. So two things I see here. Uh, A, the danger of Prosper Mountain. The danger of Prosper Mountain. Notice where Nebuchadnezzar's troubles start. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. Nebuchadnezzar is sitting on top of the world here. And the Babylonian Empire has become the most powerful nation on earth. This true world empire. Uh, they had the, the hanging gardens of Babylon, which actually are not from Babylon. They were relocated from the nation of Media. So his wife from Media, she was homesick. So he said, I will just relocate a national park. Like, that's love, right? I'll relocate the, the Everglades for you, baby. Anything you want to make you feel at home. I, I tried to move Yosemite for Jill, and I just, I just couldn't. I didn't have that, that power. The, the wall of Babylon that was protecting their uh, city, it was so wide, they said that they could, they could turn a four-horse chariot around on top of the wall. They would have chariot races on the top of this giant wall. They were bragging about horsepower even back then. Right? Oh, oh, oh. But they, they had, and I just picture Nebuchadnezzar kind of reclined in his lazy boy or lazy king, and he's just watching on replay just the world domination that he's, man, I just love when we captured that nation. Rewind, watch that again. They have got Nebuchadnezzar and his people. They have comfort. They have entertainment. They have protection. They have power. Life is good. As we said, pride comes before the fall. And this indicates, a fall indicates what? A high place. That often the fall happens from the mountaintop of prosperity, not down in the valley of adversity. And this is where Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, they're at ease, they're flourishing. And I think about for us, I think about on a national level, like we've all grown up pretty much only knowing the United States as, as a world superpower. And so we've never really been afraid of being taken over by another nation. We have our brief 9-11 scare, uh, but our day-to-day comforts have never truly been threatened. And what a gift. What a gift. But also what a caution that we would not start putting our trust in horses and chariots and militaries and constitutions. But also I see this on a personal level, right? Like, I don't know about you, but most of the falls in my life have come after times of prosperity, of, of mountaintops, of relative ease and, and comfort. And I start getting cocky, right? I got this, God. I, I got this from here. And my guard is down. I have this illusion of control, and then I don't really need God in my actual day-to-day. So in the midst of Nebuchadnezzar's prosperity, God breaks in and thunders on Nebuchadnezzar's prosper mountain. Look at verse 5. I had a dream and it frightened me. While in my bed, the images and visions in my mind alarmed me. So he has another scary dream. And who's there to interpret? Who's going to interpret Daniel's dream for him? Oh, come on. There we go. Dan, Dan, the dream-telling man. And here's his dream in, in a nutshell. Nebuchadnezzar's dream was that he, there was this humongous tree that all the world could, could see, and it provided food and shelter for all of the rest of the living creatures. But then this kind of divine Paul Bunyan comes by, chops the tree down, leaving only a stump and, and some roots. And Daniel says this symbolizes, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, your kingdom, the greatness of your empire, but also its fall. And he has this to say to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, you will be driven away from people to live with wild animals. You will feed on grass like cattle and be drenched with dew 
uh, from the sky for seven periods of time. So this bizarre scene. And he says this is going to happen for seven periods of time. Now, what does that mean? Well, we don't know for sure. It could mean seven years. Uh, what we know is in the Jewish mindset, seven is a number of completion or perfection. So I think the point here is for as long as necessary to complete what God is doing. Like when you tell your child, go to your room, and they say, for how long? You can tell them seven periods of time, right? For as long as it takes for you to learn your lesson. And there's a lesson that King Nebuchadnezzar needs to learn here. And what is it? Finish up verse 25. Until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms, and he gives them to anyone he wants. Says you need to learn, Nebuchadnezzar, that what you have is not yours. It's a gift to you from the Most High God. This is a principle that we see here. We need to learn that when we try to become more than ourselves, we actually become less than ourselves. When we attempt to become more than what God has called us to be, we actually find ourselves reducing ourselves. Look at verse 28. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, so God had warned him, given him 12 months, but did he learn his lesson? He did not. As he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, the king exclaimed, Is this not Babylon, the great, that I have built to be a royal residence by my vast power and for my majestic glory? Instead of seeing the position that he had and, and the gift of this kingdom that he had as a gift from God to steward, he starts seeing himself as the creator. What does he say? I have built this. That this is intended for my glory, my power. He starts saying, look, I have a big kingdom over there and a big kingdom over there, right? He is feeling himself. And really, Nebuchadnezzar's story is the story of humankind. That God created the earth, filled it with plants and animals and what he called it good. And then his crown jewel was humankind. And it says we were made in his image. That word means little statues, little representatives of God here on this earth to represent his reign on earth as it is in heaven. And just like Nebuchadnezzar, God gave mankind the dignity and glory and honor of the highest position on earth. He said, I want you to rule over the rest of this earth. And what do we do with that? When we exalted ourselves, instead of ruling under God, we wanted to rule as gods. And this is what Adam did when he said, I will take from that tree and eat if I want to. Thank you very much. And in essence, Adam was telling God, like Nebuchadnezzar, this is my garden. I have built it for my power, my glory, and I'll run it how I choose. It's my garden, and I'll eat if I want to, eat if I want to. And pride entered our world. Now, I think it's important, when we think of pride, we need to see it in, in two different ways that it manifests itself. The first one is that we see pride as arrogance. So pride and arrogance basically says, this kingdom belongs to me, and I can do whatever I want with it. If you were here last week, this is a deadly lie. Bow to me, that I know better than anyone how to run my household, how to run my finances, how to do my job, how to raise my kids. I've got this. But then the other side, and probably the one that you and I struggle with more, is pride as insecurity. See, this says, this is my kingdom to control, and I don't know what I'm doing. And there's this fear and anxiety and feeling of being overwhelmed by what we have on our plate. That I'm gonna, this idea that I'm not good enough, that, that I'm going to mess up my marriage, I'm going to mess up my kid, I'm going to mess up my job, I'm going to mess up my finances, I'm a failure, I very much don't got this. And both of these, here's the reality, both of these are self-obsession. 
That both of these are, the lie is that I'm in control, and the difference is just whether or not I think I can handle that control. And both of these fail to see that what I have is, all of what I have are gifts from God for his glory and for the good of others. So what's the result of Nebuchadnezzar's pride? Verse 33. At that moment, the message against Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people. He ate grass, just like God said he would, like cattle, and his body was drenched with dew from the sky until his hair grew like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. He became less than God. And I think about in the movie The Lord of the Rings, and pardon if this is maybe a little graphic, but you see Gollum's like a descent. Remember when he, um, when he ha- was obsessed with his precious. And here's Nebuchadnezzar wanting to control. It's consumed by his kingdom, and it devolves him. And there's this graphic of kind of what, a depiction of what he looked like in this moment. And this is what sin does. It mars the beautiful image that God has created, and it makes us beastly. It makes us ugly, less than what he intended. And God is saying, you're going to treat others like beasts, you will become like one yourself. And I see, if I can be honest, like I see this ugliness in my own heart. Like when I'm consumed with myself and pride, whether arrogance or insecurity, it drives me to anger, to defensiveness, to, 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 to demeaning the people around me. It drives me to jealousy, to pettiness. As Narnia language says, I become perfectly beastly. And so when we try to be more than ourselves, we actually become less than ourselves. So, so what do we do? How does God purge us of pride? Let's look at the next point. When God makes the humble whole. He makes the humble whole. And what's his central tool for doing this? This is what um, ancient theologians have called the dark night of the soul. The dark night of the soul. So Nebuchadnezzar's story reminds me of Ebenezer Scrooge's. If you remember the story, uh, of course, I I know the Disney one the best. Uh, This rich, powerful man, uh, like Nebuchadnezzar, uh, but also like Nebuchadnezzar, his pride is taken over. And Scrooge hoards all of his money. He only takes from others. He doesn't give in generosity. He doesn't look out for the interest of Bob Cratchit. He just sees him as someone to extract from. And, and, and he, he's miserable, and he makes everybody else around him miserable. And Scrooge, like Nebuchadnezzar, requires a nightmare to wake him up. That, that he was shown, this is where the path of pride is going to take you. And that you are demeaning others, treating them like beasts. And he sees this horrible scene where Tiny Tim, Bob Cratchit's son, has died from a lack. And then, and then he's taken over to his own grave, where there's nobody there to even shed a tear or mourn his loss. And this dark night, it wakes him up and, and it changes the way he sees his money and his life. And he moves to a generosity and to helping the Cratchit family. And Tiny Tim belts out at the end, God bless us, everyone. And he sees, man, it's better to give than receive. This is the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 34, at the end of those days, those seven periods of time, however long it was, this sufficient period of a timeout, Nebuchadnezzar's dark night of the soul, he learned something. The way I would describe the dark night of the soul is this. It's a period of despair and emptiness or, or meaninglessness. It's a feeling, potentially, of feeling totally separated from or abandoned by God. Maybe you felt that. Maybe you are there right now. It's, it's a dark night, but, but a night in which God can teach us some profound things about ourselves. For Scrooge, this was just a dream. But for Nebuchadnezzar, it was more than a dream. That dream had to become reality for him to learn this lesson. And oftentimes, this is what happens in our lives, that God has to shake us out of of our prosperity before we recognize a need to grow, a need to change in our lives. 
See, when we're at ease, when the world is at ease and we are flourishing, it can be hard to acknowledge any kind of need for a heart change or to depend on him. I got this, right? But sometimes God lets us, maybe sometimes it's letting us get caught in a sin. If someone found you on the laptop looking at what you shouldn't have been looking at, somebody finds you in the affair, somebody fi- and, 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 that, and there's a dark night that follows that. Maybe it's a tragedy. It, it's the marriage on the rocks. It's, it's a job loss. It's a call from the doctor. And maybe it's just a general feeling, a dry season, where you feel nothing but depression, anxiety, a numbness. Maybe you feel nothing at all, no hope. And God can graciously use the, the dark night of the soul for our growth. I love Jane Eggleston says it so beautifully. She says, thank you for the valleys, Lord, for this one thing I know. The mountaintops are glorious, but it's in the valleys I grow. We know this hiking in Alaska, right? When you're on the mountaintop, it's beautiful. That's one of my favorite places in the world. The view that you get, but there's no growth up there. Where is all the growth taking place? Down in the valleys. We have to see this dark night that God graciously brings us through as a gift. This is his patience, or as Romans 2 says it, God's kindness leads us to change, leads us to repentance. God graciously, he warns Nebuchadnezzar for 12 months, not to mention all that we've seen him do in the first three chapters of this book, right? But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't change. And so God knows Nebuchadnezzar needs to take a journey to the end of himself to transform him into a beast as a consequence of his own choices, which which reminds me of another story, a story that Jesus tells of the prodigal son. And what happens in this story? The the son wants, he wants an an early inheritance from his father, essentially telling the father, I want your money, I don't want a relationship with you. But the son, the father lets the son go, and and he lets him take the, and he's going to have to find out for himself that the money of his father without a relationship with his father will not satisfy. And he goes through this dark night of the soul where he ends up finding himself slapping with the pigs before he learned and returned home. This is what the father does to us, for us. He, he, Romans 1 says he gave them up to the desires of their hearts. God will always give us what we want. He graciously gives us these things. I mean, I found that in my life. For 20 years, I chased the dead end of pornography before recognizing that it truly was a dead end, slopping with the internet pigs. That we'll see that, that the Father, we need to learn that, that for ourselves that the, taking the Father's gifts and trying to build our own little kingdom leaves us in this mud pit of despair. But in Nebuchadnezzar's mud pit, there was still hope. Because what was the vision? You will be cut down, but there's a stump that remains. There, God will always, he's not done with Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to, in his grace, he's going to leave a way back. Verse 26, as for, the, as for the command to leave the tree stump with its roots, your kingdom will be restored to you when? As soon as you acknowledge that heaven rules. See, it was only when Nebuchadnezzar came to the end of himself through the dark night of his soul, picking the grass out of his eagle's talons, that he was ready. And here's what happens at the end of that seven periods of time. At the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven, and my sanity was restored to me. He takes his eyes off of himself, and like the father, like the son returning home to the father, what does God do? Nope, sorry. No, just like in our story, the father runs to Nebuchadnezzar and throws his arms around him. Now, consider what Nebuchadnezzar has done. 
he's not just told a couple of white lies. He's ravaged and destroyed and killed nation after nation, men, women, and children, horrific things. And yet the father runs to him with open arms as he did to me and as he does to you. But the humility highway that leads us home to the father must and can only run through the path of the gospel. See, for a long time, I misunderstood what humility was. I thought it meant just kind of wallowing in how rotten of a sinner I was. That it was just kind of, if I, I could almost pay for my sin by rubbing my nose in it. If I felt bad enough for it, bad Justin, sinful Justin, kind of, kind of just living in that despair. But that's not humility. What we, we peaked at this last week. C.S. Lewis says that humility is not thinking less of yourself, how awful I am. It's thinking of yourself less. It's actually taking my eyes off of myself. And and notice this is when Nebuchadnezzar's rescue came, when he took his eyes off himself and looked to heaven. See, the gospel is not just realize how bad you are and then wallow in it. It's, yes, understand our sin, but then look at who Jesus is and look at what he has accomplished for us. Because the good news is that Jesus lived the humble life that I never can and never will on my own. And that ironically, the only one worthy of being exalted as God himself was the only one who lived in perfect humility. And then Jesus died for my pride so that I can return home to the Father and be perfectly accepted as his son because I come in the name and washed in the blood of his only begotten son. But what we find on this journey back are some obstacles. The first obstacle is, is our own badness. We can, we can find this obstacle in, our, in the insecurity of our pride. How often does our, our pride say, I'm too bad, I'm too dirty. God couldn't forgive me of that sin. Like, the, what did the prodigal do when he came home? He said, I'm not worthy of being your son. Just let me be your slave. And what does his father say? Hush now, that's nonsense. You are my son. You will always be my son. Let's turn that cow into a steak and dance, right? He welcomes him home, and we, brothers and sisters, in Jesus, are welcomed as sons and daughters of the King now and forever. The gospel says no one is good enough, and that's the whole point. The only grounds for acceptance before him is the perfection of Jesus in me, not my own perfection. But then also, and equally, another obstacle home is our goodness. That oftentimes we, we look at, we try to be good, we try to earn our way back and say, well, I'm good. Maybe I'm not as good as I should be, but I'm certainly better than my brother. We compare ourselves to, to others. This is what the older son did, right? You, you had those annoying siblings who, who, when you got in trouble, they're like, I didn't run away from home, did I, Dad? Right? I didn't squander your inheritance, did I, Dad? Right? I'm so good. Aren't I? Shut up, son. Right? That's... What do we, the older son was just as arrogant as the younger son. It just manifested itself in self-righteousness. The gospel says to our arrogant pride, again, no one is good enough, because here's the reality. God's holiness is our standard, not just trying to beat out your neighbor. We don't earn our Father's hug through our good works, nor by wallowing in our bad works, but it's simply by taking our eyes off ourselves altogether and leaving them on the person and work of Jesus. He will always give us a way back. And really, Nebuchadnezzar's story is the story of Israel. What what have they done? In their arrogance, they took what God gave them to be a light to the nations and said, we'll do it our way instead of your way. And in disobedience, they were sent into exile. For how long? 
seven periods of time, 70 years, until they learn their lesson, come to the end of themselves and reach out. But we know Israel's story. They don't. The ultimate re- the hope they had was not in them correcting their errors. They said, I will leave a stump. But Isaiah 11 tells us who that stump is. The shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. That this stump that would bring life out of it was not anybody other human from Israel, but Jesus Christ himself. He would come back and be the king that Nebuchadnezzar nor any of king of Israel could ever be to lead us back to true peace and life through his reign. From the dark night of the soul, we find it's not by realizing how bad we are, but how wonderful our true king is. It's by looking at this new life. and I want to end by looking at this new life and the better life that Nebuchadnezzar found under his true king, and a life that's available for you and I too. So the last point I want to look at is that pride takes, but humility gives. Pride takes, humility lives. Here is the swan song from Nebuchadnezzar. This is the last time we hear from him in the book of Daniel. At, the time, at that time, my sanity returned to me, and my majesty and splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out. I was, listen, I was reestablished over my kingdom, and even more greatness came to me. He got back his kingdom and more. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, and here's the difference, praise, exalt, and glorify the king of the heavens, because all his works are true, and his ways are are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. What do we see here? Through the dark night of the soul, Nebuchadnezzar learns the lesson of humility. And what did he find? His sanity. His wholeness before his God. See, God wanted Nebuchadnezzar to flourish as king. He wasn't against Nebuchadnezzar. He was for him. But it was only possible to truly flourish as a king if he did it God's way instead of his own way. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, you've been ruling in arrogant pride. You've been taking and taking and taking, making other people bow to you and do it your way. And the insecurity that you don't have enough, so you need more kingdoms, more subjects, more dominion. I gave you this position as king of Babylon, a great responsibility, but to use it not to take from others, but to give to others. He says this in the dream. He said, its leaves, this tree, its leaves were beautiful, and its, its fruit was abundant, and on it was food for who? Nebuchadnezzar? No, for everybody. Wild animals found shelter under this tree. The birds of the sky lived in its branches safely, and every creature was fed from it. See, he says, the kingdom that I gave you, this tree was intended to give food and shelter and protection for others, not to take from them, but to give to them. So then again, you go back to those first three verses, and we hear the humble tune that Nebuchadnezzar has learned and is singing. To those of every people, nation, and language who live on the whole earth, may your prosperity increase. I am pleased to tell you about the miracles and wonders the Most High has done for me. What I have is given to me by God. How great are his miracles. How mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. Do you see this? He, he sees God rightly as the true king, as the giver of all good things. And when he sees God rightly, that gives him the lens to see the people around him rightly as well. And he, what does he say to the people? May your prosperity increase. This, this phrase, may your prosperity increase, is a, in Hebrew, it is the term shalom saga. Repeat after me. Shalom saga. 
beautiful. Now, what this means is, is peace, shalom, the word, Hebrew word for shalom, be multiplied, right? So that you would all get more Sega Genesis, right? I don't know what the, uh, they, so we, he says, may your peace be multiplied. I want your, you to flourish, your peace, your wholeness. God's way for Nebuchadnezzar was to use Babylon's resources to help the rest of the world flourish, to humbly live for his God's glory and the good of other people. That's how he would find sanity. And this is for us too, in Christ. This is so crazy, you guys. He calls us back to what he intended for in the Garden of Eden. He says, I've intended for you to rule over and take care of this world. And that's actually what's coming for us in the new heavens and the new earth. We are going to reign with Jesus over this world forever. Like, how cool is that? I can't wait for that. But what he says here is he's only going to work with those who will do things his way who will rule under him and rule with him. And that's why he says, I will use the proud, the le- uh, excuse me, whoops, that's heresy. I will use the humble, the least of these, to rule with me. Because the reality is, pride takes. The reason that pride takes is because it's always comparing. See, the whole idea of self-elevation is that I've got to be above someone or something else. So inherently, our pride compares with others. I love what Ian Duguid says about this. Pride is never satisfied in what has been accomplished because its essence always lies in defeating others, not in achieving the thing itself. The eyes of pride are thus always fixed on myself and my performance in a way that leaves no room for looking upward to God like Nebuchadnezzar had to learn. So like, I think about this as a pastor. If I pastor in pride then I will never be satisfied, right? Uh, It's not just having a healthy church and healthy individuals. i got to be bigger than the Bible chapel, right? We need more people, more money, more praise, more success, right? Just more and more. It, It takes and it takes and it takes. Pride is the elevation of self. And, and by definition, I have to compare. I have to be better than you. I'm never satisfied, never secure in what I have. And the arrogant side of pride says, I'm better than you. The insecure side says, I'm worse than you. But both are a fixation of self. It's a taking. But humility is the opposite of that. See, humility gives. Humility gives. It doesn't take. It gives glory to God. It gives for the good of those around us. And why is humility free to give? Well, again, it only is found in the good news of Jesus. It's only when we step into the reality of God's love for us. And how do I know my God is for me? How do I know my God loves me? Because in humility, he gave. He gave his only son for me. And when we see God rightly, it's so easy to live with this, this subtext of God as a taker, this demanding taskmaster that wants to just take for me. He's out to get me every time I, I step out of bounds morally. But for us to understand that my God, at the heart of God is he loves us as his children, that God has everything he needs. So he is now free. He doesn't need anything from me. He's free to give to me, to love me. To, to, and that's what I find my God trustworthy in the cross of Jesus. And as we find our God trustworthy, it starts to change us. I love this. It all gets wrapped up in a nutshell. And we'll read this at the end of the service. Humble yourselves, First Peter says. Un, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Why? So that he may squash you every time you cut out a line? No. So that he may exalt you at the proper time casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you. See, by faith, we can relax into the Father's love for us, his sufficiency, his care for us, and then know that he will lift me up at the right time, that he'll meet all of my needs and care for me. See, if, if I'm starving, if I don't have enough food, and I go to the, the store, if I go to Safeway, and I see the last steak there, I'm going to fight you to the death for that steak, right? Because if I don't eat, I'm going to die. 
But if I recognize I've got a full stomach and my, a full pantry, I can walk in there and say, man, I've got everything I need. Here, you take it. This is for you. I hope you enjoy it, right? Like Nebuchadnezzar, we are called to use all of our resources, our time, our money, the skills that we have, the house that we live in, not to build ourselves up in pride, but for the good of other people, to help other people prosper, that, that we would see their prosperity, their shalom, their wholeness uh, prosper. This is the mission of our church. We say that we, our mission as a church is to help the broken in this world find wholeness, find shalom, to flourish in Jesus. But, but we, if but starving people can't offer bread to the hungry, we can only go out on mission if we have a stomach full of Jesus. It's only in Christ that I can find the satisfaction and content of, with what God's given me. So it's not more, 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 take, take, take. It's you can have all the world. Just give me Jesus. I have Jesus. But further, and lastly here, looking to Jesus begins to transform us to be like Jesus and to do what Jesus did. Here's what Daniel's warning shot was to Nebuchadnezzar before he stepped into that dark night of the soul. He said, here's what, I'm calling, here's what God is calling you to, Nebuchadnezzar. He said, therefore, may my advice seem good to you, my king. What are you supposed to do? Separate yourself from your sins. Repent. Change. How? By doing what is right. And from your injustices, by showing mercy to the needy. Perhaps there will be an extension of your prosperity God wants us to flourish. Maybe you don't have an empire. Right? I don't think any of us are running an entire empire. And yet each of us, we have a house. We have a family. We have a, we have a job. We have spheres of influence and responsibility. And we're only going to flourish through if we, if, we rec- if we separate ourselves from our sins and start doing what is right. The word repentance means to change. There are, each of us have beliefs and behaviors that need to change. See, Nebuchadnezzar wasted the 12 months that God gave him to repent, but he didn't waste that dark night of the soul. Duguid said the purpose of the dream was to provide Nebuchadnezzar, it was a, there was a warning shot here across his bow, so that he might repent of his pride. And, and maybe God is firing a warning shot across your bow. Maybe you've been caught in that sin. Maybe you find yourself in that dark night of the soul and a, a, peer, a, a phase of hopelessness, meaninglessness. Maybe you found yourself in the midst of a tragedy. The, the, the reminder, the warning here is don't waste it to repent while there is still time. So if you just close your eyes, I'm going to do a few moments of heart work here as, as we close down. I'm going to ask you a couple questions to consider before the Lord. You answer to him, not to me. So maybe think about, first of all, what are some beliefs that need to change? Repentance is, is change, and it starts with what we believe. Our behavior always follows our beliefs. So the question is, what do you believe about your God? And let's be honest here. Not just what do you know the Bible says, but what do you actually believe? Belief is shown by life. So do you really believe that God is for you? Do you really believe that he has given you everything you need in Jesus? Or do you find yourself going, ah, yeah, I know that on paper, but I think it's really Jesus plus a little bit more sexual gratification. It's Jesus plus a little bit more money. It's Jesus plus that better job. It's Jesus plus my, my friends and those people changing the way they're acting toward me. Is it Jesus plus nothing, or is it Jesus plus something? But what about some behaviors and habits that need to change in light of those beliefs? If you believe that you have enough in Christ, then, then how are you viewing your time? Do you see your time as, as your time to do what you want, to accomplish your goals? Or is it for God's purposes in your life? 
What about your money? Are, are you just using it for your own temporary happiness and pleasure? Or are you using it to give to those in lack? Are you using it to be generous? What about your house? Is your house a place where you're loving your family well, where you're inviting other people into your home to be hospitable? Or is this just kind of a, a castle of your own comfort? What about your skills? Are you using your skills to serve other people, to help other people, or just simply to, to engage in your own hobbies and do, do what you see fit? What about relationships? Do you see other people and, and desire their flourishing in Jesus as much that, as your own? Or do you see them as just in light of yourself and how are they treating me? How, how are, are they meeting my needs? Are they, how, how, what, is, what is their uh, reaction to, to me? Ironically, the best thing for us is to not make it about us. As we take our eyes off of ourselves and we put them onto Jesus, we'll find ourselves living for the glory of God and for the good of others. And it's only when I believe that all my needs are met in Jesus that I'm going to be free to live the better life of humility that gives and gives just like our Savior did for us. So Father, I just pray a simple prayer that you would give us the grace to trust you more. Give us the grace to take our eyes off of ourselves and to see you rightly in complete control for us, not against us, giving us everything we need in Jesus to free us up, to live for your glory and for the good of others. We do this in the humble name of Jesus and all God's people said. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us? Can I keep from singing your praise? How could I? 